Section 8 of Hard Times by Charles Dickens This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Hard Times, Chapter 15 Father and Daughter Although Mr. Gradgrind did not take after Bluebeard, his room was quite a blue chamber in its abundance of blue books. Whatever they could prove, which is usually anything you like, they proved there in an army constantly strengthening by the arrival of new recruits. In that charmed department, the most complicated social questions were cast up, got into exact totals, and finally settled if those concerned could only have been brought to know it. As if an astronomical observatory should be made without any windows, and the astronomer within should arrange the starry universe solely by pen and ink and paper, so Mr. Gradgrind in his observatory, and there are many like it, had no need to cast an eye upon the teeming myriads of human beings around him, but could settle all their destinies on a slate, and wipe out all their tears with one dirty little bit of sponge. To this observatory, then, a, a stern room with a deadly statistical clock in it, which measured every second with a beat like a rap upon a coffin lid, Louisa repaired on the appointed morning. A window looked towards Coketown, and when she sat down near her father's table she saw the high chimneys and the long tracks of smoke looming in the heavy distance gloomily. "'My dear Louisa,' said her father, "'I prepared you last night to give me your serious attention in the conversation we are now going to have together.' You have been so well trained, and you do, I am happy to say, so much justice to the education you have received, that I have perfect confidence in your good sense. You are not impulsive, you are not romantic, you are accustomed to view everything from the strong, dispassionate ground of reason and calculation. From that ground alone, I know you will view and consider what I am going to communicate. He waited as if he would have been glad that she said something, but she said never a word. Louisa, my dear, you are the subject of a proposal of marriage that has been made to me. Again he waited, and again she answered not one word. This so far surprised him as to induce him gently to repeat, A proposal of marriage, my dear, to which she returned without any visible emotion whatever. I hear you, father. I am attending, I assure you. Well, said Mr. Gradgrind, breaking into a smile after being for a moment at a loss, you are even more dispassionate than I expected, Louisa, or perhaps you are not unprepared for the announcement uh, i have it in my charge to make i cannot say that father until i hear it prepared or unprepared i wish to hear it all from you i wish to hear you state it to me father strange to relate mr gradgrind was not so collected at this moment as his daughter was 
He took a paper-knife in his hand, turned it over, laid it down, took it up again, and even then had to look along the blade of it, considering how to go on. Uh, "'What you say, my dear Louisa, is perfectly reasonable. I have undertaken, then, to let you know that, in short, <laughs> Mr. Bounderby has informed me that he has long watched your progress.' with particular interest and pleasure, and has long hoped that the time might ultimately arrive when he should offer you his hand in marriage. That time, uh, to which he has so long, and certainly with great constancy, looked forward, is now come. Mr. Bounderby has made his proposal of marriage to me, and has entreated me to make it known to you, and to express his hope that you will take it into your favourable consideration. Silence between them. The deadly statistical clock very hollow, the distant smoke very black and heavy. Father, said Louisa, do you think I love Mr. Bounderby? Mr. Gradgrind was extremely discomfited by this unexpected question. Well, my child, he returned, I really cannot take upon myself to say. Father, pursued Louisa, in exactly the same voice as before, do you ask me to love Mr. Bounderby? "'My dear Louisa, no, no, I, I ask nothing.' "'Father,' she still pursued, "'does Mr. Bounderby ask me to love him?' "'Really, my dear,' said Mr. Gradgrind, "'it is difficult to answer your question.' "'Difficult to answer it, yes or no, father?' "'Certainly, my dear, because here was something to demonstrate.' and it set him up again, because uh, the reply depends so materially, Louisa, uh, on the sense in which we use the expression. Now, Mr. Bounderby does not do you the injustice, and does not do himself the injustice, of pretending to anything fanciful, fantastic, or, I'm using synonymous terms, a sentimental. Mr. Bounderby would have uh, seen you grow up under his eyes to a very little purpose, if he could so far forget what is due to your good sense, not to say to his, as to address you from any such ground. Therefore, perhaps, uh, the expression itself, eh, I merely suggest this to you, my dear, may be a little misplaced. What would you advise me to use in its stead, father?' Why, my dear Louisa, said Mr. Gradgrind, completely recovered by this time, I would advise you, since you ask me, to consider this question as you have been accustomed to consider every other question, simply as one of tangible fact. Uh, the ignorant and the giddy may embarrass such subjects with irrelevant fancies and other absurdities that have no existence properly viewed, really no existence, but it is no compliment to you to say that you know better. Now, what the facts are in this case? You are, we will say, in round numbers, uh, at twenty years of age. Mr. Bounderby is, we will say, in round numbers, fifty. 
there is some disparity in your respective years but in your means and positions there is none on the contrary there is a great suitability then the question rises is this one disparity sufficient to operate as a bar to such a marriage in considering this question it is not unimportant to take into account the statistics of marriage so far as they have yet been obtained in england and wales <laughs> i find on reference to the figures that a large proportion of these marriages are contracted between parties of very unequal ages and that the elder of these contracting parties is in rather more than three-fourths of these instances the bridegroom it is remarkable as showing the wide prevalence of this law that among the natives of the british possessions in india uh, also in a considerable part of china and among the kolmucks in tartary uh, the best means of computation yet furnished us by travellers yield similar results the disparity i have mentioned therefore almost ceases to be disparity and virtually all but disappears what do you recommend father asked louisa her reserved composure not in the least affected by these gratifying results that i should substitute for the term i used just now uh, for the the misplaced expression louisa returned her father it appears to me that nothing can be plainer confining yourself rigidly to fact the question of fact you state to yourself is does mr bounderby ask me to marry him yes he does the sole remaining question then is shall i marry him i think nothing can be plainer than that shall i marry him repeated louisa with great deliberation precisely and it is satisfactory to me as your father my dear louisa to know that you do not come to the consideration of that question with the previous habits of mind and habits of life that belong to many young women no father she returned i do not i leave you to judge for yourself said mr gradgrind i have stated the case as such cases are usually stated among practical minds i have stated it as the case of your mother and myself was stated in its time the rest my dear louisa is for you to decide from the beginning she had sat looking at him fixedly as he now leaned back in his chair and bent his deep-set eyes upon her in his turn perhaps he might have seen one wavering moment in her when she was impelled to throw herself upon his breast and give him the pent-up confidences of her heart but to see it he must have overleaped at a bound the artificial barriers he had for many years been erecting between himself and all those subtle essences of humanity which will elude the utmost cunning of algebra until the last trumpet ever to be sounded shall blow even algebra to wreck the barriers were too many and too high for such a leap with his unbending utilitarian matter-of-fact face he hardened her again and moment shot away into the plumbless depths of the past to mingle with all the lost opportunities that are drowned there 
removing her eyes from him she sat so long looking silently towards the town that he said at length eh, are you consulting the chimneys of coketown works louisa well there seems to be nothing there but languid and monotonous smoke yet when night comes fire bursts out father she answered turning quickly well of course i know that louisa i do not see the application of that remark to do him justice he did not at all she passed it away with a slight motion of her hand and concentrating her attention upon him again said father i have often thought that life is very short this was so distinctly one of his subjects that he interposed it is short no doubt my dear still the average duration of human life is proved to have increased of late years and the calculations of various life assurance and annuity offices among other figures which cannot go wrong have established the fact i speak of my own life father oh indeed still said mr gradgrind i need not point out to you louisa that it is governed by the laws which govern lives in the aggregate whilst it lasts i would wish to do the little i can and the little i am fit for what does it matter mr gradgrind seemed rather at a loss to understand the last four words replying how matter what matter my dear mr bounderby she went on in a steady, straight way, without regarding this, asks me to marry him. The question I have to ask myself is, shall I marry him? That is so, father, is it not? You have told me so, father, have you not? Oh, certainly, my dear. Let it be so. Since Mr. Bounderby likes to take me thus, I am satisfied to accept his proposal. Tell him, father, as soon as you please, that this was my answer repeat it word for word if you can because i should wish him to know what i said oh it is quite right my dear retorted her father approvingly to be exact i will observe your very proper request have you any wish in reference to the period of your marriage my child none father what does it matter Mr. Gradgrind had drawn his chair a little nearer to her, and taken her hand. But her repetition of these words seemed to strike with some little discord on his ear. He paused to look at her, and, still holding her hand, said, "'Louisa, I have not considered it essential to ask you one question, because the possibility implied in it appeared to me to be too remote.' But perhaps I ought to do so. Uh, you have never entertained in secret any other proposal? Father, she returned almost scornfully, what other proposal can have been made to me? Whom have I seen? Where have I been? What are my heart's experiences? My dear Louisa, returned Mr. Gradgrind, reassured and satisfied, you correct me justly. I, I merely wish to discharge my duty. What do I know, father, said Louisa in her quiet manner, of tastes and fantasies, of aspirations and affections, of all that part of my nature in which such light things might have been nourished? 
What escape have I had from problems that could be demonstrated, and realities that could be grasped? As she said it, she unconsciously closed her hand, as if upon a solid object, and slowly opened it as though she were releasing dust or ash. "'My dear,' assented her eminently practical parent, "'quite true, quite true.' "'Why, father,' she pursued, "'what a strange question to ask me. "'The baby preference that even I have heard of as common among children "'has never had its innocent resting-place in my breast. "'You have been so careful of me that I never had a child's heart. "'You have trained me so well that I never dreamed a child's dream.' You have dealt so wisely with me, father, from my cradle to this hour, that I have never had a child's belief or a child's fear. Mr. Gradgrind was quite moved by his success, and by this testimony to it. My dear Louisa, said he, you abundantly repay my care. Kiss me, my dear girl. So his daughter kissed him. Detaining her in his embrace, he said, I may assure you now, my favorite child, that I am made happy by the sound decision at which you have arrived. Mr. Bounderby is a very remarkable man, and what little disparity can be said to exist between you, if any, is more than counterbalanced by the tone your mind has acquired. It has always been my object so to educate you as that you might— well, still in your early youth, be, if I may so express myself, almost any age. Kiss me once more, Louisa. Now let us go and find your mother. Accordingly they went down to the drawing-room, where the esteemed lady, with no nonsense about her, was recumbent as usual, while Sissy worked beside her. She gave some feeble signs of returning animation when they entered, and presently the faint transparency was presented in a sitting attitude. "'Mrs. Gradgrind,' said her husband, who had waited for the achievement of this feat with some impatience, "'allow me to present you uh, Mrs. Bounderby.' "'Oh,' said Mrs. Gradgrind, "'so you have settled it. "'Well, I'm sure I hope your health may be good, Louisa, "'for if your head begins to split as soon as you are married, "'which was the case with mine, "'I cannot consider that you are to be envied, "'though I have no doubt you think you are, as all girls do. "'However, I give you joy, my dear, "'and I hope you may now turn all your logical studies to good account.' "'I'm sure I do. I must give you a kiss of congratulation, Louisa, but don't touch my right shoulder, for there's something running down it all day long.' "'And now you see,' whimpered Mrs. Gradgrind, adjusting her shawls after the affectionate ceremony, "'I shall be worrying myself morning, noon, and night to know what I am to call him.' "'Mrs. Gradgrind,' said her husband solemnly, "'what do you mean?' "'Whatever I am to call him, Mr. Gradgrind, when he is married to Louisa, I, I must call him something. It's impossible,' said Mrs. Gradgrind, with a mingled sense of politeness and injury. "'To be constantly addressing him and never giving him a name, I cannot call him Josiah, for the name is insupportable to me. You yourself wouldn't hear of Joe, you very well know.' 
am i to call my own son-in-law mister not that i believe unless the time has arrived when as an invalid i am to be trampled upon by my relations then what am i to call him nobody present having any suggestion to offer in the remarkable emergency mrs gradgrind departed this life for the time being after delivering the following codicil to her remarks already executed as to the wedding all i ask louisa is and i ask it with a flutter in my chest what actually extends to the soles of my feet that it may take place soon otherwise i know it is one of those subjects i shall never hear the last of when mr gradgrind had presented mrs bounderby sissy had suddenly turned her head and looked in wonder in pity in sorrow in doubt in a multitude of emotions toward louisa louisa had known it and seen it without looking at her from that moment she was impassive proud and cold held sissy at a distance changed to her altogether chapter sixteen husband and wife mr bounderby's first disquietude on hearing of his happiness was occasioned by the necessity of imparting it to mrs sparsit he could not make up his mind how to do that or what the consequences of the step might be whether she would instantly depart bag and baggage to lady scadgers or would possibly refuse to budge from the premises whether she would be plaintive or abusive tearful or tearing whether she would break her heart or break the looking-glass mr bounderby could not at all foresee however as it must be done he had no choice but to do so so after attempting several letters and failing in them all he resolved to do it by word of mouth on his way home on the evening he set aside for this momentous purpose he took the precaution of stepping into a chemist's shop and buying a bottle of the very strongest smelling salts by george said mr bounderby if she takes it in uh, the fainting way i'll have the skin off her nose at all events uh, but in spite of being thus forearmed he entered his own house with anything but a courageous air and appeared before the object of his misgivings like a dog who was conscious of coming direct from the pantry good evening mr bounderby uh, good evening ma'am good evening <laughs> he drew up his chair and mrs sparsit drew back hers as who should say uh, your fireside sir i freely admit it it is for you to occupy it all if you think proper oh well don't go to the north pole ma'am said mr bounderby thank you sir said mrs sparsit and returned though short of her former position mr bounderby sat looking at her as with the points of a stiff sharp pair of scissors she picked out holes from some inscrutable ornamental purpose in a piece of cambric an operation which taken in connection with the bushy eyebrows and the roman nose suggested with some liveliness the idea of a hawk engaged upon the eyes of a tough little bird she was so steadfastly occupied that 
Many minutes elapsed before she looked up from her work. When she did so, Mr. Bounderby bespoke her attention with a hitch of his head. "'Mrs. Sparsett, ma'am,' said Mr. Bounderby, putting his hands in his pockets, and assuring himself with his right hand that the cork of the little bottle was ready for use, "'I have on occasion to say to you that you are not only a lady born and bred, but a devilish sensible woman.' "'Sir,' returned the lady, "'this is indeed not the first time that you have honoured me with similar expressions of your good opinion.' "'Mrs. Sparsett, ma'am,' said Mr. Bounderby, "'I am going to astonish you.' "'Yes, sir.' returned Mrs. Sparsett interrogatively, and in the most tranquil manner possible. She generally wore mittens, and she now laid down her work, and smoothed those mittens. "'I am going, ma'am,' said Mr. Bounderby, "'to marry Tom Gradgrind's daughter.' "'Yes, sir,' returned Mrs. Sparsett. "'I hope you may be happy, Mr. Bounderby.' "'Oh, indeed, I hope you may be happy, sir.' And she said it with such great condescension, as well as with such great compassion for him, that Bounderby, far more disconcerted than if she had thrown her work-box at the mirror, or swooned on the hearth-rug, corked up the smelling salts tight in his pocket, and thought, "'Now confound this woman! Who could have ever guessed that she would take it in this way?' "'I wish with all my heart, sir,' said Mrs. Sparsett, in a highly superior manner. Somehow she seemed in a moment to have established a right to pity him ever afterwards, "'that you may be in all respects very happy.' "'Well, ma'am,' returned Bounderby, with some resentment in his tone, which was clearly lowered, though in spite of himself, "'I am obliged to you. I hope I shall be.' "'Do you, sir?' said Mrs. Sparsett, with great affability. "'But naturally you do. Of course you do.' A very awkward pause on Mr. Bounderby's part succeeded Mrs. Sparsett, sedately resumed her work, and occasionally gave a small cough, which sounded like the cough of conscious strength and forbearance. "'Well, ma'am,' resumed Mr. Bounderby, under these circumstances, I imagine it would not be agreeable to a character like yours to remain here, though you would be very welcome here. Oh, dear, no, sir, I could on no account think of that. Mrs. Sparsett shook her head, still in her highly superior manner, and a little changed the small cough, coughing now as if the spirit of prophecy rose within her, but had better be coughed down. "'However, ma'am,' said Bounderby, "'there are apartments at the bank "'where a born and bred lady as keeper of the place "'would be rather a catch than otherwise, "'and if the same terms—' "'I beg your pardon, sir. "'You were so good as to promise "'that you would always substitute the phrase "'annual compliment.' "'Well, ma'am, uh, annual compliment. Uh, the, "'If the same annual compliment would be acceptable there, "'why, I see nothing to part us unless you do.' "'Sir,' returned Mrs. Sparsett, "'the proposal is like yourself, "'and if the position I shall assume at the bank "'is one that I could occupy 
without descending lower in the social scale why of course it is said bounderby if it was not ma'am you don't suppose that i should offer it to a lady who has moved in the society you have moved in not that i care for such society you know but you do mr bounderby you are very considerate you'll have your own private apartments and you'll have your coals and your candles and all the rest of it and you'll have your maid to attend upon you and you'll have your light porter to protect you and you'll be what i take the liberty of considering precious comfortable said bounderby sir rejoined mrs sparsit say no more and yielding up my trust here i shall not be freed from the necessity of eating the bread of dependence she might have said the sweet bread for the delicate article in a savoury brown sauce was her favourite supper and i would rather receive it from your hand than from any other therefore sir i accept your offer gratefully and with many sincere acknowledgments for past favours and i hope sir said mrs sparsit concluding in an impressively compassionate manner i fondly hope that miss gradgrind may be all you desire and deserve nothing moved mrs sparsit from that position any more it was in vain for bounderby to bluster or to assert himself in any of his explosive ways mrs sparsit was resolved to have compassion on him as a victim she was polite obliging cheerful hopeful but the more polite the more obliging the more cheerful the more hopeful the more exemplary altogether she for the forlorner sacrifice and victim he she had that tenderness for his melancholy fate that his great red countenance used to break out into cold perspirations when she looked at him meanwhile the marriage was appointed to be solemnized in eight weeks time and mr bounderby went every evening to stone lodge as an accepted wooer love was made on these occasions in the form of bracelets and on all occasions during the period of betrothal took a manufacturing aspect dresses were made jewelry was made cakes and gloves were made settlements were made and an extensive assortment of facts did appropriate honour to the contract the business was all fact from first to last the hours did not go through any of those rosy performances which foolish poets have ascribed to them at such time neither did the clocks go any faster or any slower than at other seasons the deadly statistical recorder in the gradgrind observatory knocked every second on the head as it was born and buried it with his accustomed regularity so the day came as all other days come to people who will only stick to reason and when it came there were married in the church of the florid wooden legs that popular order of architecture josiah bounderby esq of cooktown to louisa eldest daughter of thomas gradgrind esq of stone lodge m p for that borough and when they were united in holy matrimony they went home to breakfast 
to Stone Lodge aforesaid. There was an improving party assembled on the auspicious occasion, who knew what everything they had to eat and drink was made of, and how it was imported or exported, and in what quantities and at what bottoms, whether native or foreign, and all about it. The bridesmaids, down to little Jane Gradgrind, were, in an intellectual point of view, fit helpmates for the calculating boy, and there was no nonsense about any of the company. After breakfast the bridegroom addressed them in the following terms. "'Ladies and gentlemen, I am Josiah Bounderby of Coketown. Since you have done my wife and myself the honor of drinking our healths and happiness, I suppose I must acknowledge the same, though as you all know me and know what I am and what my extraction was, you won't expect a speech from a man who, when he sees a post, says, that's a post, and when he sees a pump, says, that's a pump, and is not to be got to call a post a pump, or a pump a post, or either of them a toothpick. If you want a speech this morning, my friend and father-in-law, Tom Gradgrind is a member of Parliament, and you know where to get it. I am not your man. However, if I feel a little independent when I look around this table today and reflect how little I thought of marrying Tom Gradgrind's daughter when I was a ragged street boy who never washed his face unless it was at a pump, and that's not oftener than once a fortnight, I hope I may be excused. So I hope you like my feeling independent. If you don't, I can't help it. I do feel independent. Now, I have mentioned, and you have mentioned, that I am this day married to Tom Gradgrind's daughter. I'm very glad to be so. It has long been my wish to be so. I've watched her bringing up, and I believe she is worthy of me. At the same time, uh, not to deceive you, I believe I am worthy of her. So I thank you on both our parts for the good will you have shown towards us, and the best wish I can give the unmarried part of the present company is this. I hope every bachelor may find as good a wife as I have found, and I hope every spinster may find as good a husband as my wife has found. Shortly after which oration, as they were going on a neptule trip to Lyon, in order that Mr. Bounderby might take the opportunity of seeing how the hands got on in those parts, and whether they, too, required to be fed with gold spoons, the happy pair departed for the railroad. The bride, in passing downstairs, dressed for her journey, found Tom waiting for her, flushed, either with his feeling or the vinous part of the breakfast, "'What a game girl you are to be such a first-rate sister, Lou,' whispered Tom. She clung to him, as she could have clung to some far better nature that day, and was a little shaken in her reserved composure for the first time. "'Old Bounderby's quite ready,' said Tom. "'Time's up. Good-bye. I shall be on the lookout for you when you come back. I say, my dear Lou,' Ain't it uncommonly jolly now? 
End of section eight of Hard Times.